Welcome to our podcast. Good news, we are currently running a special promotion for new Hedgeye podcast listeners. Get your first month free to any one of our investing products for brand new Hedgeye subscribers. Email Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com to get yours. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to another Real Conversation with my friend, economist, strategist, Daniel Lacaye, uh, where we're going to go around the world as fast as we can here in about 20 minutes or less. We're going to try to hit on everything from Europe uh, to China slowing. We're going to hit on the expectations of inflation. We're also going to really hammer on this point, which is we're not, at least I don't think he thinks, that we're in a globally synchronized recovery anymore. At Hedgeye, we call that, of course, global divergences. So again, that's driving volatility around the world in terms of markets. And that is indeed new. So first, um, Daniel, welcome. And um, secondly, I just want to tee up and let you get going here on you know, what your thoughts are uh, in, on, on Europe in particular. You had the Italian election, obviously, this week. Yeah. Hi. Thank you very much, Keith. Thanks for having me. The Italian elections have brought back what, what actually never left, but, pe- but markets forgot, which was uh, political risk. And I think that one of the one of the factors that continues to drag on growth in Europe is is this political risk. The Italian elections have shown yet again, as a country that has had more than 50 governments in the last 60 years, um, how challenging the political environment is in in, in in a moment in which reforms are so important. No, so the data that we have seen in the last uh, couple of days, uh, inflation expectations. The ECB lowered its inflation expectations to 1.4% for 2018. Uh, Industrial production, both in Germany, France and Spain, very, very weak, shows that countries were too complacent with monetary policy and that they uh, forgot about reforms and that is dragging on growth. Mm. Now, that didn't surprise you or I, but it seemingly has surprised the entire world's edifice of uh, economists. Like uh, Draghi, wasn't he supposed to be hawkish, Daniel? Uh, that's the thing. You see, uh, Draghi was supposed to be hawkish in an environment of uh, allegedly better growth, better inflation and better unemployment. Um, but he proved to be a lot less than that and actually talked about extending the QE further, which uh, which goes against the bullish view of a European Union that grows faster than most of the developed markets. And uh, more importantly, it shows how uh, challenged uh, the situation is for sovereign bonds and for and for credit in general if the ECB stops its purchases. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you, you've had so many people. I've been on the road a, a ton lately. I was actually in your stomping grounds last week in London. But a lot of people have really been surprised uh, with the divergence. And again, that's an important word for, ever, for all of you that are watching to write down. Divergence. So again, when something's doing something different than that other big something. Another big, big something, of course, was U.S. interest rates rising. Um, but you know, people have been almost uh, shocked that European bond yields have been falling, that inflation expectations in Europe look very different than in the U.S. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the the first factor that is consistently ignored by macroeconomists and and generally by by analysts in the market is overcapacity. The problem in Europe continues to be of excess capacity. That is not an issue in the United States. Slack in the economy is very, very, very low. Uh, And obviously, uh, the level of debt and the level of public spending makes a big difference on on growth. So... uh, you know, agent of the population, overcapacity and debt are three factors that that uh, massively impact 
the European Union relative to the United States. And uh, and again, the United States had a problem of overcapacity. It was nine years ago. It's almost reduced to you know to to the to the average uh, uh, level of the last uh, twenty years, at, and definitely at the levels of of uh, of the best years of expansion. Yeah, we're we're constantly um, trying to remind people of these secular issues that you're talking about. You do as good a job as anybody out there, by the way, on these longer term issues, these structural issues. Overcapacity in Europe, the lack of innovation, the lack of wage growth. I mean, you've nailed pretty much all of that. So congrats. Uh, you're on an island of your own, even though it may not be London today. Uh, but at the end of the day, I mean, th- th- is it not true? And I, 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 I tend to get in debates with uh, even you know, clients that are paying us about this. Is it not true that these secular issues really come to bear when the cycle is slowing? Of course. Because when, the, when, when, when we're in an expansion phase... Credit growth is sort of disguising all these factors, and you have a, a recovery in consumption. That is, that is okay. And it looks, uh, for a brief period of time, as if demographics, as if the problems of overcapacity have been forgotten, or at least as if they were being solved in some form by higher expenditure and by higher credit growth. When even more worryingly, when we look at some of the macro macro data, like uh, GDP, for example, public expenditure uh, disguises and and shadows, overshadows many of these problems. Uh, but, 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 you know, it lasts for a very brief period of time. We have seen it in Japan. Uh, and it already in the fourth quarter was slowing down dramatically. And we have seen it in Europe. It's been a, a two, two and a half years of ex- fundamentally by the uh, in, uh, external sector, by, by exports, driven by uh, public expenditure. But, that, but, but the longer term trends immediately catch up to reality. Yeah, and that, and that to me is like if there's just one summary statement that you've just made here on global divergences, that's just it. I mean, the USA and, and France, for that matter, are not the same, are they, Daniel? Not at all. Not at all. We, we were discussing the last time that we saw each other. Today, the S&P 500, 25% of the S&P 500 is uh, technology companies, yeah. our technology companies. Uh, if you look at the euro stocks, it's the same companies that existed there 20 years ago. It's the same conglomerates, <laughs> the same industrial conglomerates, banks and uh, utilities, very slow growth, low productivity sectors. There's a huge difference as well in terms of the dynamism of the economy. You, uh, the, both countries, uh, France and, and, and the U.S., have a very large proportion of small and medium enterprises. The big difference is that small and medium enterprises in the United States are much more dynamic, much, uh, much stronger, and also, and also bigger. So the drag on growth of very high public expenditure, the debate these days in the, United, in the European Union is, is about the monster expense in, in, in pensions, for example, and in healthcare. So uh, what is happening is that the, the tax which continues to increase uh, for the productive sectors to subsidize the unproductive sectors, and that always leads to lower growth, lower earnings potential, and lower, uh, and, and, and lower improvement of the economy.
It's, um, I mean, it's, 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 it's really starting to come to bear now. Now, for people to believe these stories, of course, Daniel, they have to see uh, the stock market or the bond market or the currency market, for that matter, uh, start to diverge itself. Now, that's happening. So if you look at, I mean, the Nasdaq's actually, believe it or not, uh, I'll believe it because it's something that you, know, you, would, you would be long if you believed in the di- dynamism of U.S. growth and lower taxes on that growth. But um, the Nasdaq's literally hitting a new all-time high right now, like as we speak. And uh, yeah. if you show, if you show a, you know, a chart of that versus the German DAX, you know, even for the year to date, I mean, oh, my God, it's just awful. And, and, and I have a lot of people kind of coming to me saying, well, I'm long Europe because it's cheap. Uh, and they're definitely long Germany. You know, what, do you think of, what do you think about that German narrative that a lot, a lot of U.S. investors are long, long, long these European, quote, unquote, value stocks? Well, let, let's start with the German problem. If you want to continue to be long Germany, you have to be long stocks that, are, that have been a very, very poor growth in the past uh, 10 years and believe in a margin expansion that neither the companies nor the general environment suggest will happen. But more importantly, I think that uh, the, the, the problem of the European stock market is that everybody every year says that it's cheap. Of course it's cheap. <laughs> Look at the earnings growth. I mean, look at the earnings growth. It doesn't even compute. So far, you look at Bloomberg estimates, the estimates of uh, earnings growth, EPS growth for the Eurostox 500 have, have, have come down only in 2018. They have been brought down by 32%. 32%. Wow. Hmm? That'll, that'll so leave a mark. Is, yeah, exactly. So... The, the first thing that you have to realize is that if you're bullish in, in, on Europe, you have to believe that those multiples will expand for no reason, because it's not coming from margins, it's not coming from top-line sales. More importantly, it's not coming from buybacks or dividends, which has always been a strong factor of multiple expansion in the United States. So the problem that you have for Europe is that you're betting on a value uh, um, uh, value opportunity that does not translate to growth and more importantly cannot translate to multiple expansion because it's not underpinned by better total shareholder return policies. Yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful way to put it. I mean, isn't it fascinating that if you buy something that is quote-unquote cheap and the E goes down by 32%, now it just got a lot more expensive uh, as the price is going down, I might add. So again, this is kind of the, isn't this the trap? And I find this, and, and I actually try to, to try to position it, per, particularly with a perspective in, institutional client. I almost apologize before I say it, but I say, apologies in advance if you're a relative value manager in macro, but the reason why that doesn't work is because cheap can keep getting cheaper if the prevailing growth conditions start to slow. Now, is, mm-hmm. that, is that a problem out there in the, in the macro space? You see a lot of underperformance by macro managers. Is that just the, the basic perform- problem is that they're trying to use their value strategies in stock picking at the macro level? Well, the first problem in general that every strategy that is driven by macro analysis faces in the current world that we live in is that most macro analysts 
place too much importance on monetary policy and on government spending and too little on the fundamental drivers of economy, which are profits, uh, private consumption and and you know the 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 general real economy the 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 profit driven economy we've talked about this before so we the so macro strategies place too much importance on political events and too much importance on uh, demand side policies and too little on supply side reforms and therefore they're bound to be uh, disappointed because the more that we see these stimulus etc you see that the results are worse and worse <laughs> so i think that that is that to me is one of the of the big problems the other problem is you were mentioning that you you cling on to valuation hmm? valuation is cheap for a reason yeah. there is nothing in there's nothing that you have found out that the rest of the market is unaware of is these are the the average growth of eps of the euro stocks 500 in the last uh, 10 years has been zero so <laughs> you, you need to understand that that Add it to the debt and add it, and, and, I, and I come back to this point all the time, the total shareholder return policy is not oriented towards multiple expansion. So if you are buying a U.S. company that uh, might have some divergences in terms of consensus estimates, but at the same time has a good buyback program and a good dividend program, that underpins multiples. But if you have, like you have in Europe, so many companies that not only don't buy back shares, but actually pay you the dividend in shares, then you have a problem. Yeah, big problem. I mean, at the end of the day, it is what it is. This whole macro tourism thing, it's got to be in my bonnet, I got to say. But at the end of the day, it's actually, I, I, I stopped being upset about it. I just started getting excited about it in the last six months because it's so pervasive, Daniel. So many people have to have a macro opinion. But as you know, just having an opinion doesn't make it accurate. I mean, these cartoons we're coming up with on the, on the macro tourism front certainly make me <laughs> chuckle. But uh, thanks to Bob Rich for that. Um, you know, because basically what they're doing is they're jumping from destination to destination. That's the whole point about tourism, as opposed to going from time series to time series within like long-term secular you know, uh, time series as well. So, so to me, that, that, that's interesting. Um, you made the point on inflation. Like you don't, inflation, what is your view? Should you have a, a global view that varies from a U.S.-centric view or not? Uh, inflation expectations, as you know, is the number one fear in the U.S. currently today. It's on the cover of Barron's. It's the biggest net long position in macro with crude oil going into this most recent week. Uh, the biggest net short positions in Treasury. So it's all one big bet. Everyone's scared about the same thing which is inflation expectations. What do you think about that? Well, the, the first thing is that inflation expectations are overblown, to me, clearly overblown. Really? And what I find more fascinating about it is that as we get closer to real data and both the Fed, uh, we've seen today wage growth, for example, that got everybody so so worried about inflation in January. Uh, today slows down to a 2.6% year-on-year growth. Um, what we cannot seem to understand is that the drivers of disinflation, technology, capacity, and high debt are much more forceful, much stronger than the drivers of And the drivers of inflation, mainly, uh, chiefly commodities, have been driven fundamentally by not by supply demand. Because even today, even with the cuts in OPEC, even with all of the supply management that we have seen in other commodities, the reality is that oversupply continues to exist in the market. 
So that is not a problem. I don't see any, I don't see the problem in technology disinflation. I don't see the problem in Asian population. I don't see the problem in, in a world that has ample supplies of, of, the, of the products and services that it needs to grow further. I think that that is a very good thing. I think that the problem is that consensus is both extremely exposed to cyclical stocks, cyclical uh, bets on the on the portfolio side, and at the same time worried about inflation expectations. Yeah. So uh, I'm not worried about inflation expectations. I think that the, those secular drivers continue to be disinflationary. And to those, we have to add now the possibility of tariffs and uh, uh, challenges to, to global trade. That is disinflationary as well. Yeah, that, that's going to surprise people that you say that. But, I mean, uh, when you're surprised if Daniel Lacaille say, says something, please don't be surprised. Check your premise. He's right a lot of the time on a lot of this stuff. Um, but let, let's, take a, let's take a crack at that. I mean, the, the last big topic I, I wanted to hit on before we take uh, uh, the audience's questions. And, again, if you have questions, it's a live queue. Uh, we'll go to that soon here. So just pop your questions in the queue for Daniel. Uh, and I'll go through them systematically. Uh, but on China, like we, you, you spent a lot of time talking about the secular issues over supply. You know, how about the demand side of inflation? What, what do you think about that, and particularly the Chinese component? Well, the first one is that what we are already seeing is Chinese imports coming down. Mm-hmm. Uh, more importantly is that the Chinese model is extremely disinflationary, both in the midterm and in the long term. China in January added more debt than the United States, the European Union, the UK and Japan together. That, that is crazy. And, and that amount of, of debt addition added to the way in which the model is, is, is continuing to be uh, driven by a level of expenditure that doesn't generate uh, real returns afterwards is ends up being disinflationary, creates small ticks of inflation when imports uh, grow rapidly. But then the inventories, overcapacity come back to bite. Hmm? And that's where, you know, you see it, for example, in working capital and, uh, and the Chinese companies. You see it in the level of debt of, sta- of, of state-owned companies, of state-owned enterprises. So, you basically, the fact that China is slowing down, is not, again, I'm not worried about it. I think that China's not just good, it's good for China and it's good for the rest of the world. But again, the demand side of the inflation equation has only one player, which is China. And China plus India are not going to offset the uh, lowering of, of, of long-term consumption that aging of the population and technology disinflation uh, put into the rest of the world's economy. Yeah, I mean, for anybody who wants to get up to speed on what Daniel just said, just listen to, if you can, it's three and a half hours long or almost four, uh, Xi's most recent uh, Chinese Communist Congress, where he basically flipped the switch. I mean, he basically went from go, go build, grow, 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 to what he calls supply-side reform, take down pollution, be a good citizen. A very different pivot now that he doesn't have term limits, I guess, isn't it? <laughs> that is, and that is a key factor, is that, remember... All the talks from the Communist Party, from himself, from the big uh, uh, politicians about higher growth, about uh, uh, keeping the, the engine running, were leading up to the, that, uh, that, that Congress. From that Congress onwards, the message is stability, it is uh, you know, uh, improving the model. It, we're seeing 
credit growth being uh, tackled, which is a good thing. Again, I'm not questioning uh, that that all those things are, are negative. I don't want to see uh, money supply growth in China being twice GDP growth. I, I think that that was insane. So I think that all those things are positive for everyone. But again, they're not inflationary. Yeah, well, that, you've said that a couple times. And actually, I'll go to the queue. Uh, first question is literally that. I knew, I knew as soon as you said it, Daniel, we were going to get this question. Uh, we got it three times. Uh, from Walter, why are tariffs and trade barriers disinflationary? Tariffs gen- generate a little bit of inflation in those uh, commodities and uh, in the price of those, uh, of those elements to which they're targeted at. However, the impact on global trade, the impact of concerns about retaliation, the impact of uh, slowdown in economic activity, and obviously, if those commodity prices are passed on to the prices of consumer goods, they also affect consumption. So if you look at it, for example, I think that a very, very good example was shown in the 2002 tariffs that uh, the Bush Jr. administration implemented. The Bush Jr. administration uh, tariffs on steel were disinflationary. They also shaved off a little bit of GDP growth. They created unemployment. Let's remember this. Unemployment rose in the steel market, in the steel industry and in the equipment and manufacturing industry. And we also have to remember that these tariffs don't address either the problem of protectionism from the side of China, the European Union or others. They're basically just an excuse to be as protectionist as they are. But more importantly, is that the industry, the steel, the aluminium industry themselves are already in overcapacity, even if you stopped importing from uh, from those countries. If you put Canada, uh, the United States and Mexico together, it's already uh, an overcapacity market. So you're not going to see an inflationary pressure. And by the way, you just have to look at where prices are of iron ore, of steel, of aluminium in the global markets. No, that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, and part of this problem, as you know, Daniel, is, is an education problem. Uh, you know, I went to uh, the School of Keynesian Economic Thought, and I, I, I don't think... Um, you know, you, you, you subscribe to that. But at the end of the day, um, you know, people are taught these relationships happen in a very, very static and point and click <coughs> matter. So if I impose a tariff, it gives you a higher price. You know, it has nothing to not, nothing that I learned at Yale University had to do with the second order effects, the second order effects upon second order effects. What does that flow to towards demand when you shut off? Um, certain valves in the system. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing that we continue to educate people the wrong way in this country. Uh, if, I guess if any values in that education, it's what not to do. Um, but again, I, I appreciate that answer because it is indeed the answer um, that I think a lot of people that know what they're doing would, 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 would agree with. Uh, second question, um, what is Daniel's process for measuring data? Because he seems to nail it a lot. Mm. Oh, well, thank you so much. First, <laughs> that's very, that's very kind. Well, the, bit, the, the most important thing I think that all of us uh, need to pay attention to is, is to disaggregate data as much as you can. So every time that you look at GDP, just don't look at GDP. Look at what's happening with inventories. Look at where the GDP growth is coming from. Is it coming from uh, higher consumption from, from households? Is it coming from higher government spending? It's not the same. And it is not the same in terms of uh, potential growth. Same with inflation. When you look, don't look just at 
headline inflation and core inflation, which is important, go to core inflation and where the inflationary pressures are building and where the disinflationary pressures are building. If you're in a service economy and you are seeing that the disinflationary uh, pressures are happening in all of the service si uh, sides of, the, of, 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 of what builds the CPI, then you cannot see inflation uh, going going higher in a longer term pro basis, except for the uptick of maybe commodities because of the dollar. Pay a lot of attention to to monetary uh, monetary policy. The, the effect of monetary policy, we need to look at it. If they are supposed to be driving uh, further, for example, credit growth. One of the things that Keith and I have been talking for a few uh, months is, well, if you see more fixed uh, investment, if you see more capital uh, investment growth, for example, in the United States, and it goes to the industrial sector and it goes to generating higher return, that is a great thing because that builds on potential growth. Now, if 80%, like in the European Union, 80% of fixed growth investment is recycling of capital, that is not generating further long-term growth. That is actually just zombifying the economy. It's simply exchanging papers. So, you know, just, just pay attention to, to, to details. It's, it's not, literally, it is not rocket science because, and, and, and pay less attention to demand side uh, comments. They're very headline grabbing, but they don't matter that much afterwards. Yeah, the macro tourism central, those, those, uh, those headlines can be. Uh, all right, flipping a switch here to a new question. Um, Daniel, since you're based in London, what do you make of the current Brexit situation? Hmm. Well, the current Brexit situation is extremely complicated because the negotiation process is going much slower and, 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 and we're not getting a lot out of, out of how it is going. So we're, the uncertainty is, is very, very important. I think that the European Union, because the, the European Union, Brussels has seen a little bit more growth, they're a little bit more confident, they're being a lot more aggressive in terms of the negotiations. And the UK, at the same time, uh, is not a very strong government because it continues to be uh, in, a, in, a, in not an absolute majority. Uh, so it, it is a complicated, a complicated process. However, big points that we have to take out of this. And again, coming back to the, <laughs> I love the term, Keith, macro-tourism. Um, everybody that was saying the UK is going to enter into recession, this is going to be an absolute disaster, this is a train wreck. Reality is that it's not. Reality is that the UK is growing. It's not growing as much as it as it should, but it's growing 1.6%. It's not in recession. Uh, unemployment is at all-time lows. Exports are uh, driving the economy. It's you know, it is okay. There is inflation is higher than expected, mm -hmm. but you know we have to be less negative about the, the the situation for the United Kingdom because I think that it's proven to be a lot more resilient than what markets were willing to to consider. And in terms of the of the process, I think that it will get nastier. I think that the messages, the rhetoric coming from politicians uh, have to be more aggressive. The European Union has to keep a strong stance so that Poland, so that Holland, so that the, the uh, Finland, other countries don't decide, hey, I like that, I like that outcome. No? And at the same time, the United Kingdom needs to present a very strong case because it has a few uh, aces in, in its sleeve. So I would be, uh, you know, I would be 
moderately optimistic with the caveat of a very, let's say, long and an uncertain negotiation. And obviously, uh, reading macro data can be challenging, but reading politicians' uh, objectives is even more challenging. <laughs> well, that's another place, too, by the way, from an economic data perspective, uh, for those that follow rate of change. You know, the UK is one of the more likely places to see inflation fall as well, uh, because it was one of the few places that saw inflation uh, in pounds, you know, in, you know, mm. go all the way up to its top. I think, it, what was that, in the third or the fourth quarter last year, uh, Daniel, that we saw uh, a peak or at least a peaking process of, of British inflation? Yes, I think that you, if, you look at, if you look at the process of building, uh, of inflation building, we saw that throughout the third to the fourth quarter, disinflationary pressure started to build up yet, yet again. So uh, the, the concerns about rising inflation uh, are not big concerns to me. I think that inflation in the UK is driven, as you very well said, by uh, a monetary factor, the, the, the pounds, uh, the pounds uh, relatively weak against its main trading currencies. That is driving exports higher, but it's obviously uh, putting a dent on, a, on an economy that is a service-driven economy. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing thing. I mean, if you go back to, you know, talk about the macro tourism one more time. I mean, if you go back to the most consensus net short position, the most bearish position in all of macro last year at this time, it was indeed the British pound. I mean, the British pound was yeah. at, what, 117, 118 coming into the year. People were just, you know, poo-pooing it on Brexit, this, that, and the other. Uh, and lo and behold, the pound goes to a buck 42, and, and everybody and their brothers along the pound again uh, a year later. I, I, I only mention that because I wonder what your thoughts are on the dollar. Uh, I, I meeting to meeting, door to door. I go from Vail, Colorado to London to yesterday. I'm in Greenwich, Connecticut. The number one short position. I don't even have to go to all these places to know it. It's in the futures and options contracts positioning. But the number one most bearish position in the world from a currency perspective is the dollar. Uh, the dollar's driven a lot of assets up, in particular EM, uh, emerging market oriented assets. What do you think about the dollar from here? Do you think that it's going straight down in a ball of fire, or could it trade sideways to up? Or what, what do you think? I think that the U.S. dollar from here trades sideways and then up as the reality about uh, inflation expectations and the reality about EM growth starts ah. to kick in. Okay. Because, it, you see, you have mentioned it very, very clearly. You know, it's, there's almost a unanimous bet in consensus that is long commodities, long emerging markets. So it's the carry trade against the dollar. Right, exactly. That carry trade against the dollar can be driven by faith, can be driven by analysis, and it can be driven by uh, expectations that things are going to improve significantly better than what consensus already has. And remember that consensus for 2018 is already extremely optimistic globally about uh, about the, the synchronized growth uh, yeah. factor and about emerging markets and commodities. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's a deck of cards that only needs one thing, uh, you know, one little push to drive it the opposite side, to the opposite trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, and to see the flow back of dollars into safer territory, into uh, U.S. treasuries, into the U.S. market. In my opinion, it, it will start unraveling with inflation expectations, obviously with commodities. We're already seeing a sell-off in energy names, in commodity-driven names. Uh, I think that that and then 
consensus shaving off some of the expectations of EM growth basically just uh, brings back a little bit more sanity into, into in my opinion, this uh, extremely uh, aggressive bet against uh, one single, one single uh, currency. Yeah, and, and, and we have to review this with clients all the time, but when the world's in a globally synchronized recovery, and by the way, that is not that common, um, so people shouldn't straight line that as a normal uh, when the world's in a globally synchronized recovery, the biggest loser across all asset classes is one thing, and that's the U.S. dollar. Because the U.S. dollar has to fund every other crazy thing you're willing to do. If you want to go buy Tanzania, debt in Tanzania, whatever you want to go buy. You want to go buy an emerging market currency, emerging market debt, emerging market anything. You generally fund it in dollars. The flows go that way, and then they're willing to come back in a hurry if you see those places slow. So you know, to me, I think that a lot of people get stuck in their political narratives about, well, you know, the tax cut was a, a driving the deficit. That's one small part. I mean, it's not small part but it's one part of the analysis. It's certainly not the bigger part of the analysis. And I think that that's the point on global divergences. If we see that, then I would, too, expect the dollar to trade, you know, start to actually trade sideways to up. And I'm, I'm trying to get ready for that position. It's a, it's a tough one to time. Um, but again, it, it, it's, it's one that I'm quite interested in. Um, maybe uh, the, the last question here, which is kind of tied to that, because I personally think that the big, and we both got asked this, of course, we're going to get asked this. What is the biggest risk? Um, to me, the biggest risk is that the dollar is like the new VIX. I mean, it's not the new VIX. It always does this at this point. But if the dollar were to go up meaningfully, I think a lot of people are offsides in a lot of asset allocations and exposures. Um, what, do you, what do you think the biggest risk is in global macro right now? Well, to, I think that the biggest risk is, uh, is that, in general, what we have is a big bet on synchronized growth. Right. But synchronized growth has been driven by synchronized debt, and debt is the key is the key factor here. So as long the moment that we have a, a, an uptick in the perception of risk of uh, fixed income in emerging markets and in growth economies, you can see that reverse that we mentioned before. So to me, that's the biggest risk. It can be uh, obviously driven by by slowdown in China, it can be it can be a, a you know a combination of factors. I right. think that in general that that is that is the biggest risk. And and as you were mentioning before, the unwinding of that trade, this is what people tend to forget, doesn't happen slowly. It happens <laughs> quickly. It, we saw it in ninety five, ninety seven. We saw it in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. It goes like this. When it unwinds, it unwinds fast. And that's what what you have. That's why you have to consistently uh, look at the drivers that either cement or uh, negate the, 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 what is driving the trade in order to be prepared. And I think that that is why I always pay attention to what is, what is actually happening in terms of relative to consensus estimates. Yeah. Remember that we're not in 2016. In 2016, everybody was bearish about 2017 because of ECB unwinding QE, because of uh, political risk, because of Trump, Brexit, you name it. 2017 to 2018, everybody's bullish. <laughs> so that what we need in order to keep that trade is not that uh, the data is in line with estimates or slightly down. It needs to be meaningfully better. Yeah. And that's what I don't say. No, that's right. I mean, if you look at the tech technology expectations, for example, okay, right now as we're talking, the Nasdaq's still hitting or at least testing all-time highs. 
Do you think that the expectations have gone up a little bit? I mean, tech earnings growth last year in Q1 went up 22% year over year and shocked the bears. That happened in April. That got it going. And it really you know, continued. Even the most recent quarter, tech earnings were up 22%. But eventually, they have to cycle against those earnings, i.e., they have to cycle them this April. And I think that that's a, an interesting one in particular. But uh, I thank you because you make me think. You make me think too much. I, the, ahead of the weekend, you're making me work now. I got to work uh, because <laughs> you're tying a lot of my themes to yours. And that's what I really do appreciate that. I mean, I think that in macro, uh, as opposed to being a tourist, you have to find the credible sources out there. They're, they're, uh, they are few, fewer and far in between. And, uh, and uh, the noise is a lot more uh, in oversupply, <laughs> I guess, as you would call it. <laughs> so, so thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time and for answering everyone's questions. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Great to talk to you. Have a great weekend and, uh, and continue to, to, to read your very, very interesting thoughts. All right. Thanks, Daniel. You have a good day. All right. Thank, that's a real conversation with, uh, with Daniel Lacaye. If you don't follow him, you have to follow this guy on Twitter. He, if, you, if you're into reading your economic views in, in other languages, he, he'll do that for you, too. He's, he's right there on your screen. I think you can find him at D. Lacaye. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. As a reminder, we are currently running a special promotion for new Hedgeye podcast listeners. Get your first month free to any one of our investing products for brand new Hedgeye subscribers. Email Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com to get yours. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions or conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.